Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. I just finished talking with Beverly Bossler about her really fantastic new edited volume, Gender and Chinese History, Transformative Encounters. This came out in 2015 with the University of Washington Press. And this really is, in many, many ways, a must-read volume for anybody who is interested in um, working on reading in the history of gender and China. So what it does is collects in three parts, and you'll hear a little bit about this in the interview to come, a number of essays that cover periods from the early modern, what we might call late imperial, what we might call Qing, and you'll hear us talking a little bit about the kind of pluralities of periodization in the field and in the volume. Um, So the first chapter starts, that is, in the 18th century, all the way to the ninth chapter, which takes us into the latter half of the 20th century. Along the way, these nine chapters really, um, they don't just cover really fascinating case studies. They're also innovating in terms of just kind of broader methodology, use of sources, disorientation of particularly entrenched historical concepts. Um, In all kinds of ways, these essays are really, really wonderful. And the collection itself um, is just absolutely fabulous, not just as a reader and as a scholar, but also this is going to be great to teach with. And so anybody right now thinking, uh, who's an academic, who's thinking about either setting a comprehensive exam list or um, making a comprehensive exam list, if you don't don't already have this on your list and you're doing gender history, history of China, um, history of gender in China, this needs to go on your list yesterday. Otherwise, the essays are just really well written um, and really a pleasure to read and quite exciting. So with that, I will leave you to it. Um, it was really a pleasure to talk with Beverly about this book. We previously had a chance to talk about her most recent monograph. Um, and as ever, I'm not just grateful to her for making the time, but I'm also grateful to you listeners for making the time to listen to this conversation right now. So thanks for being here. Thanks for your support. And I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Beverly Bossler about her new edited volume, Gender and Chinese History. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. Beverly, welcome back. It's great to have you back on the channel. And thanks very much once again for making time to talk with me about a really excited, ed- exciting edited volume. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for having me. So we've uh, actually previously had an opportunity to talk about what brought you to the field when we talked um, privately. Pre- uh, previously to this about your monograph. So let's start a little bit more proximately. For listeners who haven't had the benefit um, of listening to that interview and of reading your recent work, can you tell us a little bit about what you're typically working on lately um, when you're not editing fabulous volumes about gender and Chinese history? Uh, well, the previous project was my book that came out in 20. 20- 
13 called Courtesans, Concubines, and the Cult of Female Fidelity in China. And that represented the end of about 15 years of work mm-hmm. on that topic of gender in, in the Song and Yuan dynasties. Right now, I'm using some of that material and writing a kind of a textbook on gender and imperial history uh, for Cambridge Press. And I'm also working on a new research project that is not so directly related to gender, although it has a gender component in it. So that's uh, looking at the culture of what I call the guest in probably also Song and Yuan, certainly Song Dynasty. Great. Thank you. And we had a chance actually to talk about um, that recent book uh, for the podcast. And I can tell listeners it's fabulous. And you should definitely get your hands on a copy of that book and also check out the conversation if you're interested. So the book that we're talking about today, again, is an edited volume, Gender in Chinese History, Transformative Encounters. Now, you say early on in the book that the project actually began with a research seminar, and specifically with papers that were offered at a research seminar held at UC Davis in 2010. This is a seminar called Moving Forward, Gender and Chinese History. So Beverly, can you talk a little bit about, um, first of all, kind of what spurred that seminar? How did you decide to bring that particular constellation um, of people and papers together? And for you, were there any notable um, sort of aspects of that seminar that were particularly interesting and exciting that you would want to talk about? Well, the seminar, to be completely frank, was inspired in part by the retirement of Susan Mann. Um, and a bunch of us, friends and colleagues and students, really wanted to do something to celebrate Susan and her very, very important legacy in the field of gender history in China. And as a result, um, Susan herself, who is excessively modest, said, no, 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 I don't want anything. I don't want any celebration. I really don't want anything to happen at all. And we said, that's not acceptable. And finally, she said, well, if it's if it's an academic project, then she would tolerate that. So that uh inspired us to say, okay, we're going to have a seminar, we're going to write papers, it's going to be an academic project. And um, I think it was Gail Hershatter who suggested the general theme of really thinking about, well, what is gender anymore? What, what, What do we think gender is? Can we still hold to the definitions that we've always had? And how is gender changing what we think about Chinese history and vice versa. So that that was the kind of general theme on which we asked people to uh, be thinking around. Obviously, the papers don't directly necessarily uh, address that topic, but but they're sort of it's in the background. Great. And right at the beginning of the volume, in fact, um, the volume, I think, really clearly articulates some of the major questions that sound like they um, perhaps began at the seminar and certainly animate the uh, essays in the book. So some of these key questions, just to get those out there for listeners, include um, much in the way that you've already mentioned, what is gender in Chinese history? How has the study of gender changed the way we understand Chinese history? And how does the study of gender in China alter our understanding of what gender is? So 
moving from the seminar to the edited volume, um, this must have involved quite a bit of uh, work and editing. Um, and so I'd, I'd really like to hear a little bit about that process for you in moving from this collection of what must have been extraordinarily rich seminar papers to the volume in the particular sequence that we have it in the particular form that we have it. Were there any kind of notable, um, important or interesting parts of that translation process that came up for you as an editor and that you'd want to uh, share or talk about? Well, I guess there, there would be two things. One is partly because I was working on the other book. Uh, there was a long gestation period. I basically said, yes, I will edit this volume, but I can't do it right now. I have to finish the first book. And so that gave everybody, I think, a little more time to just have ideas bubbling in the back burner the way that they do. Um, when you're when you put some work aside for a, a while, it's usually, or at least very often, quite fruitful and you start to see things in it that you didn't originally see. So I think that helped everybody in when we finally got around to saying, okay, now we need revised papers. Um, the other part of the process, um, well, I, mean, I have to admit that there was a, when I, when I first got all the papers and I, I sort of thought, oh my, how are these going to be coherent at all? And then it, it was a, it was sort of, trying to think through them and thinking about, well, what are the themes? And all of a sudden, it, it was like they just emerged that, oh, wait a minute, actually, this paper speaks to that paper, and um, that topic comes up here and also comes up there, and, oh, look at how you're seeing this transition because of the way these two papers uh, address something. So it, it came together in a, in a way that it actually surprised me as I was editing, um, and was, I was very excited about it to sort of see that, oh, yes, actually, there is a there there. That's right. So the papers are organized to kind of jump to the structuring element of the book, again, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to, to get their own copy or get their hands on it. The papers are organized into three major parts. And so the essays are clustered then into three major time periods that accord with each one of these parts. Part one looks at um, what can perhaps roughly be described as the early modern period. I think it's called um, early modern. That language is used there. By some authors. That's right. And so even though that, so this is actually important to mention, this is what I was going to mention. Uh, one of the things I was going to mention is that the, um, one of the things that I really love about the introduction to the book and the way that the book is put together is it's very thoughtful about um, encompassing, but also um, sort of offering, but also um highlighting and marking the fact of the diversity of approaches to something like periodization in this field. Not mm -hmm. everybody self-identifies as an early modernist. Some people describe what they're doing as late imperial. Some people are talking about Ming and Qing or sometimes Song Yuan, Ming and Qing as part of a unit. And so there's a range of different approaches to what constitutes the period, um, uh, not only uh, across the field of Chinese history, um, but also sometimes in the work of an individual author, right? Sometimes a topic, uh, an individual author will refer to a, a particular approach to a topic in late imperial terms, and that same author can refer to a different approach or a different topic in early modern terms. And so the volume is very thoughtful about this and definitely flags the fact of the labeling of early modern in this first part of the book representing one of a plurality of approaches to periodization in the book. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this first part um, focuses on the 18th century, and this is a period that the book calls, um, in the words of the book, when China was at the height of its power and prosperity. This is the first four chapters. The second part of the book looks roughly at the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and this is what the book calls, and again, this is in the words of the book, when China was undergoing the wrenching transition between longstanding imperial traditions and new modern social formations. This constitutes chapters five through seven. Then there's the final third part of the book, which takes us into the latter half of the 20th century. And this period, again, in the words of the book, included both the radical social experiments of the Maoist period and the equally dramatic changes of socialist capitalism under the reform period. This constitutes chapters eight and nine. And so I bring this up here um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, perhaps to ask you to talk a little bit about the importance that you see in the way that these periods emerge and manifest in this structuring element of the book, but also to talk a little bit about how you see, if at all, because you just mentioned um, being struck by some of the ways that the papers were speaking to each other. Was there anything in particular about the way the papers were speaking to each other that uh, shaped the way you actually sequenced them and put them together into this structure? Um, Well, I guess... Having a set of papers like this, you always have a choice, right? Are you going to to frame them chronologically or are you going to uh, try to frame them by topic? And partly for me as a historian, I tend to favor a chronological approach in general. But also I thought that um, because these three periods are so distinct and the problems that animate society, the kinds of things that people were concerned about in those three periods were so different that to me it made a lot of sense to to group the papers in that chronological way. Um, it helps you see both the chronological transitions and and the and gives you different perspectives on a single period at, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, partly again, a con- true confessions here. Uh, part of it was shaped by the particular group of people that were participating and their particular interests. So that's the range came initially from from that mm-hmm. and there is a way that um and i kind of have this conversation with colleagues and students all the time there's a way that the different and, and i think they map very nicely onto the periods that you've identified um in the volume we're talking about but the ways that an individual scholar of Chinese history working on a particular period sometimes has more in common um, in terms of the sorts of sources we use, the kinds of questions that are animating our work and our writing and our research with somebody working on that period in a very different geographical context than with somebody working on Chinese history in a completely different period, right? I mean, there, there's a, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that's um, important to keep in mind and to constantly remind ourselves that the ways that we juxtapose our work with those of others don't necessarily always logically or comfortably fall um, within national or geographic terms. Right. And and if I can add, uh, this is to go back to your point about whether you call it early modern or you call it late imperial. um, Part of what we're trying to do in this book is, is point out the ways that 
what we think of as history itself is is very malleable, is is very slippery, and using those terms, the choice to use those terms changes the perspective on the period. And to be as conscious as we could about that was was one of our goals as well. This actually really nicely brings us into another kind of cluster of questions that I think emerges really beautifully from the introduction that I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about. And one of those is the issue of the nature of history. So, you know, a little question, small things. Let's talk about the nature of history. So one of the things, um, so I'm not being completely unfair, right? So one of the things that comes up uh, again in the, in your introduction to the volume um, is the importance of, and this comes up uh, fairly early on, the importance of the ways that the field and the volume and the contributions to the volume, I think really productively trouble all three terms in what would seem like a fairly simple, straightforward phrase, the history of gender in China. Right. What we get um, from a reflection upon that phrase and a reflection refracted in part through some of the most exciting recent work of the field and appreciation of the history of the field. And in fact, the contributions of the field as manifest in this volume, we get a sense that all three of those key terms, history, China and gender, are not nearly as straightforward um, as we would imagine them to be. So I thought we, w- we could take a little bit of time just talking about them in turn. Let's start with history, since that's already come up. For you, uh, what are some of the most interesting and important ways that recent work, or perhaps not so recent work, in the field of the history of gender in China has asked us to productively rethink what we mean when we talk about history? Well, I think in in very sort of simple and and terms that are obvious to scholars working in the field, but maybe not so obvious to people outside the field, certainly something that we tend to tell our undergraduates, right? It is They often even now come in thinking, oh, history is the study of kings and queens. Mm-hmm. Um, and to sort of say, well, actually, you know, there have been various shifts in what historians thought were interesting topics from the history of kings and political queens and political history to ideas trying to understand something about society. And uh, the point in this volume is the way that suddenly asking, well, what about women uh, changes that perspective as well, changes what history is. And, And I still, I mean, occasionally we'll get a student who says, well, I don't understand how this is history. We've, we've just been talking about women. And, um, yeah. So you <laughs> you do the best you can in in those situations, but but to 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 show that that there has been a shift in and and it's an ongoing shift. We're now into the cultural history, uh, you know, history of material culture. Uh, different kinds of topics have come under the historian's lens over time, and um, this is again just a trying to be as conscious about that and explicit about that as as we can be. And the, 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 in particular, the, the early modern versus late imperial thing came up because the editors uh, of the press said, well, can you impose some kind of consistency here? And we talked about it and the authors talked about it and we decided, no, actually, we can't because 
early modern makes sense if you're talking about China in the world, the way Anne Waltner is in her particular essay about a, a European depiction of a Chinese wedding ceremony. Um, but to talk about it as early modern from the pers- sort of internal perspective of the Qing as um, some of the other essays do, it doesn't make sense. It, it seems to be imposing some other agenda on that history. So, again, just being explicit about that is, I think, important and one of the things we wanted to make sure we did. And as a reader, I actually really appreciated the fact of the embracing of that plurality, right, and the thoughtfulness about that rather than trying to shove everything into one or another category. Um, and importantly as well, and this should be mentioned because it's not the case even today right, in 2016, even in our field, it's not the case that someone picking up an edited volume um, is immediately reminded that not only are there women in history, but there are women historians, right? Um, and so that's another way I think that the field has changed um, and importantly changed. And I, um, again, also really appreciate um, seeing a diversity of kinds of his- historian voices um, mm-hmm. coming into the field as well. So the other or the second term um, in this phrase, the history of gender in China that I'm going to ask you about is actually the final one. And let's talk about that. So we've talked a little bit about history. What about China? How has, um, uh, and again, for listeners who may not have had the benefit of reading uh, the volume yet, how for you has the notion of what we think we're talking about when we talk about China and history importantly changed, um, at least in part as a result of work in the field? Um, Another small question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and and in some ways, well, yeah, I'll I'll stick my neck out here and say, in some ways, I, I, that's the question in a way that gets least addressed in this particular volume. I mean, for me, from the perspective of my field, and especially from teaching early China. Um, you start to realize that it's it's very, very difficult to say what China was, for example, in the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. And there really wasn't any China there. And you start to realize that we have some kind of imposition that we're putting back onto China in a way that we don't do for Europe uh, even though it's a very kind of similar situation, right? We don't call it Rome anymore after the fall of Rome, but we somehow still call it China after the fall of the Han. And thinking about that and thinking why that is, and especially, um, again, pushing back against some of our, our students who, for whom it's a very um, fraught question, actually, about, well, what was China and how could you say that China hasn't existed in the same way? But but raising that question, raising the question of well, what do we mean? And uh, again, I'll, I'll point to Ann Walner's paper that is also showing well China as it's being understood in Europe in the 18th century is not how the Chinese themselves understood it. So so playing with that, how what we understand of China, what Chinese understand of China, what people at the time in various dynasties thought they were what they what political entity they thought they were living in, raising those questions is is where the the term we try to destabilize the term China. 
Great. Thank you. And um, just for listeners, uh, just uh, because Ann Waltner's really wonderful essay, I think, um, has already come up a couple times. This is the first chapter in the first part of the book. Um, the part one is called Early Modern Evolutions, and Ann Waltner has the first essay in that part, and it's quite wonderful. Okay, so the last term that I'll ask you about in this phrase is gender. Um, now, there's a really, really interesting discussion in the book about the ways that um, in China, according to some historians and some ways of thinking about and practicing this historiography, gender divisions of male and female, um, in the words of the book, were subsumed in other more specific social categories based in family relations and, also in the words of the book, were perhaps less tied to bodily difference than in the European tradition. So I offer these as just two concrete examples um, that are you know, offered in the introduction of ways that work in the history of gender in China and Chinese history has and continues to productively reshape and trouble what we think about when we think gender even. So for you, um, can you uh, talk about this a little bit? What are some of the most interesting ways that this troubling is happening in, in your opinion? Well, I mean, I suppose the, the sort of person who first raised this issue was, was Tani Barlow, who works on the um, early, well, uh, on the early 20th century, and who argued that, that actually the, the term woman in China was a neologism that, that came out of the impact of the West. Um, a lot of us who work on, the early, on earlier periods have a hard time with that because um, it, it seems to me and I know some others that they're very clear concepts of what a woman is as an abstract category, uh, even in the earlier period. On the other hand, I have to admit that it is a little bit more slippery, it seems, in China. There, the, the, it does seem to be a little bit less about bodily difference in some cases. And um, certainly the kinds of cross-gendering, uh, the willingness to, to the fluidity of gender categories and the, the willingness and acceptability, I guess is a good way to put it, of cross-gendering that we see in, for example, the, the late Ming, um, as well as some other periods, it, 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 it raises interesting questions. It, it forces you to think, well, wait a minute, what were the categories they were using? There are no words for masculinity and femininity in Chinese. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, and yet you can't say, well, did they have a category of what it meant to be masculine and what, cate- what word that, would that have been and um, how did they use it? And so all of that just shakes up your sort of our, our often basic assumption that, well, of course, there's always gender and there's there's always gender hierarchy and it's always male and female. Well, there is, but it's not as self-evidently uh, the same as what we normally think of in our modern day existence. So. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, and we'll talk actually about a little um, about some of that, I think, um, in the time we have to come. So the introduction not only raises these really interesting uh, 
larger issues, conceptual issues um, that play with and open up how we think of some of these major concepts, but it also offers a really helpful travel through or kind of a journey through some of the most significant and pathbreaking work in the history of the subfield so far. And so um, there are moments here that really stand out. Um, the introduction talks about, as, as makes sense, given what we've already heard, um, the significance of Susan Mann's work. Um, it talks about uh, really interesting efforts to reassess the figure of the faithful woman in Chinese history, um, reassessing um, what's uh, become known as the fidelity cult. It also raises um, sort of a, an issue or a constellation of issues that I think is really important um, at least to mark and to perhaps talk a little bit about to remind listeners or to let listeners know this is a book that's not just about women in Chinese history. It's about gender in Chinese history. And that includes an attentiveness to male-male relations. Um, and the introduction talks a little bit about the importance of, um, in the field, recent work on not just homosexual bonds among men, but also a broader field that's emerging of the history of masculinities, right? And the history of male-male relations of all sorts, um, right? All sorts of social and familial and other kinds of um, relations. So for you, um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like what's what do you take to be um, important about integrating that into the volume? And for you, perhaps, what's some of the most interesting work that's coming out of that that's contributing to this larger field of gender in Chinese history? Well, again, when you go to try to think about masculinity in China, um, you immediately run up against the fact that it appears that masculinity, well, I, mean, I suppose it's true in 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 we can use the word Western culture as well, that a lot of masculine performance is, is performed for other men, not for women. But in a society like China, where uh, a lot, so much social life was gender segregated, it, it really changes that dynamic and changes the way that masculinity was performed. And so this, there's been... You know, a number of, of interesting, there have been a number of interesting studies looking at masculinity, showing the way that class uh, affects how, what masculine performance looks like, um, arguing that, that in fact, it, it really isn't about how you prove yourself as masculine to other women. And it gets, it's, and, it gets very, very tricky to separate out performance of masculinity from performance of other kinds of status. And I think here, um, Yulian Wu's uh, article really makes a, a, a great new contribution in taking that problem by the horns, if you will, and, and really sort of making a very persuasive argument that when merchants were... Uh, performing upper class status, it's not just necessarily about class. That that an awful lot of what they do is is quite explicitly framed in terms of what it means to be a man. Um, 
Definitely. So for listeners, this is chapter three of the book, also in the first part, Collecting Masculinity, Merchants and Gender Performance in 18th Century China. And this is by Yulian Wu, who's not just a fabulous scholar, but also just a fabulous human being. So shout out to Yulian Wu um, for her fabulosity and fantasticness in general. Um, and this, um, this essay is also really interesting just to kind of mark this again for listeners um, because it is looking at relations of class and masculinity. There's also some really interesting stuff happening here um, that integrates attention to social networks and collecting. Um, and there are increasing numbers of historians and others right now who are interested in the sorts of um, social bonds and social okay. phenomena that are um, built and solidified and cemented and expressed through practices of collecting of all sorts. So this is going to be an, an essay that's also interesting if you're interested in histories of collecting and material objects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So great. Okay, so we've talked <coughs> excuse me, a little bit about this. Um, one of the things that also is really striking about the volume itself, about the individual contributions, but also something that's marked early on in the book is the importance of what many of the authors are doing in terms of their approach to sources. And you mentioned in the introduction that one of the notable things about the essays in the volume is the way that they either use unconventional sources to tell their stories or use conventional sources in kind of unconventional or surprising ways. Now, one of the essays that does this, we've already talked a little bit about. Uh, this is the first chapter in Anne Waltner's essay. Mm-hmm. But for you, are there any other... Um, is there anything else, uh, basically, that you'd like to say about that? For you, are there any kind of exciting moments that really epitomize this turn to unconventionality that can really kind of open up a lot of these issues that we've talked about? Well, uh, I guess there are several. I and mean, you've already, we've already mentioned Yulian's uh, article, which does that. And in some ways, I think every article in the volume takes a new approach in one fashion or another to, to source bases. Uh, Waging Lu's paper uses an awful lot of poetry um, to look at, expressions of, of affection between men and women, and she integrates that very nicely. Um, Emily Honig's wonderful essay at, toward the end of the volume, who looking at how a slogan is used and how a, a particular phrase that became a very popular Maoist phrase and where it really arose from, which was not where all of us assume it was, and how it was actually deployed uh, during the Cultural Revolution uh, that leads to, to very striking um, findings that... that um, yeah, I totally have to jump in here because this was um, this was one of my favorite essays, and the, all of the essays are great. But this is chapter eight, the life of a slogan, and this is in the third part of the book, radicalism and ruptures. And listeners, like what she does is she takes this slogan and she makes it into a, a an object, an organism with a life and with a life cycle, right? So this is um, the slogan is translated right at the beginning. The times have changed. Men and women are the same. Anything male comrades can do, female comrades can do too. So what does it mean, just kind of methodologically, to treat 
a slogan, right, to treat a kind of discursive object as an organism, as a, as a being, as a self that can go through transformations and that you can trace the life history of. And so it's, um, I think this is a great example, one of um, several great examples of a piece in the volume that doesn't just, it's not just informative in terms of the field of gender in Chinese history. It's also really, really interestingly methodologically innovative um, in a way that's, I think, quite inspiring. Yeah, that and and Joan Judge's use mm-hmm. photography is another really great example where she, I mean, she really shows you how dramatically images and expectations for women are changing in the early twentieth century uh, with these with visual images as well as with <clears throat> her her use of, of other important sources. Um, Gail Hershatter's use of of the self narratives of a mother and daughter is also makes a, for a wonderful juxtaposition of how two women from the same household living at the same time nonetheless have very very different ideas of each other's lives as well as what it means to be a woman and that that is extremely evocative as well. Mm-hmm. And there's also a great, uh, so that would be chapter nine, Bad right. Transmission, which is also just a great title. Um, and there's another um, essay, which I also uh, really appreciated. This is Ellen Widmer's essay, chapter five, yes. um, Media Savvy Gentlewomen of the 1870s and Beyond, which is interesting for all kinds of reasons. But one of the really cool things that it does is it brings um, the conversation about new media into uh, you know the 19th century and beyond and it looks at the ways that particular kinds of what constituted new media um, for women's writing um, newspapers literary supplements may have encouraged the idea um, in the words of the chapter of a national forum for women so it's doing really cool work right with uh, no- notions of new media and the kinds of spaces that it can create for kind of more polyvocal conversations right right yeah. So there's lots of really fascinating essays here, right? So we we won't really um, it doesn't uh, we won't really be able to talk about all of them individually, um, but let's at least as we kind of uh, look toward um, the conclusion of our conversation and sort of look toward what the next steps might be, really return back to the beginning. Um, and I'll, and you, you'll hear why I'm doing this in a moment. So you talk in the introduction about one of the motivations for the seminar, right? The research seminar that then um, that the volume came out of being to assess the state of the subfield. And you talk about some of the important questions that were motivating the contributions to that seminar and ultimately um, to the book. What had been accomplished, right, in the, in the subfield? What were the gaps in knowledge of the subfield? How had studies of gender in China changed the way we think about Chinese history and changed the way we think about gender itself? And you flag one question as perhaps most important, and this is maybe... Um, the question that I'd like to pose to you as we move toward wrapping up. How can we take research on gender in China in new and exciting directions? And so as we move, I mean, I I think one of the things about this volume that's so great is that it does, as I hope is clear, um, at least, you know, even just from the conversation we've had, it does really push not just this field, but I think uh, lots of different fields potentially in really interesting directions of all sorts. But for you, um, kind of looking back, not just at the volume, but also perhaps looking ahead, what are for you, um, what feel like some of the most new 
and exciting directions that the field either is taking now and or could be taking um, in the future to come. Wow. Uh, (laughs) I'm great with these small, very local questions that are super easy to answer, right? This is really my specialty. (laughs) Um. (laughs) But sort of our your new and exciting directions that you are at this moment well, perhaps particularly I'm, excited about. I mean, I'm going to fall back on this idea that the, the way that scholarship on gender, on masculinity, on other forms of cultural history, really, um, and are forces to rethink our chronology and forces to think our standard narrative, rethink our standard narratives of of what happened. Um, I think Susan Mann's work was, was seminal in no pun intended in, in that regard. Um, if in the sense of, of showing that what the Qing was about was very, very centrally uh, concerned with gender that, that, that the Qing state was absolutely uh Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, absolutely worried about gender issues all the time, and that you know you really can't understand what the Qing state was doing if you don't understand that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, likewise, uh, Dorothy Coe and well, and a lot of other um, early twentieth century historians showing us how absolutely central gender issues were to the rise of the communist party uh the the policies of the communist party once it got into power um all of those kinds of of questions as well so i just think that it the ways that these kinds of questions shake up our narratives is is really important and exciting So one final question, perhaps, before we kind of move to our conclusion, let's say there are listeners out there who are also considering putting together their own edited volume, right? And they're in the process of, um, they've got a bunch of research papers that are uh, coming from a seminar that have been submitted, and they're in the process of turning those into a volume that they hope is going to be fabulous and wonderful and exciting in the way that this volume is, right? And I really think this volume is. Do you have any advice for people going through that process themselves, um, given your own experience? Like, is there anything that you would say for other people who are right now in the process of, or looking ahead to being in the process of putting together an edited volume based on your experience? Um, well, I'm not sure this is practical advice for, for everyone, but in, as it happened in, 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 in this case, there was a, a long time between uh, when the initial papers were done and when we finally sat down to try to make the edited volume. And, and I do think that that was a helpful uh, phenomenon, the fact that there was so much time and people had um, a chance to get away from their papers and then come back to them, which is always a revelatory experience in my in my experience. Um, so I, I think taking your time and also really sitting down and looking for the connections. There are the connections are always there, but they need to be brought out explicitly. And I think that helps readers sort of maybe see significances that otherwise could get um, glossed over. 
you know, the, the issue with time, I'm hearing this more and more from people in all kinds of different fields um, through the podcast, is that there seems to be a kind of rising, almost a slow food movement. Right? <laughs> kind of academia. Slow scholarship. I know. <laughs> slow scholarship. I think we need to champion this. And more and more people I talk to are saying exactly that. Like there's been so much of a pressure toward publication and get things out fast and CV, blah, 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 and rush, 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 that really I think there's a move now toward slowing down, pulling back, and really taking the time. Um, and it sounds like um, this is a product of precisely that kind of thoughtfulness um, and cultivation. So Beverly, um, we have, there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't talk about. There's all kinds of things um, that we didn't get to and that are there to await the reader who dives into the individual essays and dives into the actual paper copy. But before, or in the meantime, before we close, is there anything in particular or anything in general that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to uh, mention for listeners? Um, well, and we mentioned a bunch of articles and, and, and I feel bad for the ones that didn't get mentioned because I think they're all little, if I do say, I mean, I wasn't the author, I'm only the editor, but, but they're, they're all really quite wonderful in their own right. And, um, Wang Yen's article using sources, uh, of, from a, the, a merchant's wife in the early 20th century. She's doing wonderful, wonderful work. This is the first article that she published on that material, but she's going to be doing more about it. And it's really giving us a glimpse into a, a sort of level of society that we haven't been able to see before based on these these very rare archives in Shanghai. Um, and... Uh, you know, Guo Tonglee's article as well is uh, looking at how ethnicity and gender intersect in the, the, uh, Fujian in the in the late Qing. Uh, I think is also very rich. So, mm-hmm. just mention those as well. Absolutely, and um, uh, that's chap- that last one that you mentioned is chapter two, which is really interesting work connecting not just the um, ideas of female virtue and female labor, but also talks about um, the sort of ways of thinking about women as a kind of civilizing force. And um, it's, it's really, really interesting um, as a way of bringing together uh, ways of thinking about and discourses of kind of colonial history and um, women's history um, in, in super cool ways. So you've at the very beginning, um, you were generous enough to tell us a little bit about what you have been working on, right? This textbook mm-hmm. on gender um, and imperial history, and also the new project on the culture of the guest. Um, is that is, is there anything else, or is there anything else about those projects that you um, would want to mention that's currently inspiring you? And so, basically, what I want to know right now is, what are you currently feeling most inspired by when you think about the, the work that you're doing? Um, well, mostly getting back to it now that I'm not <laughs> this quarter. <laughs> um, I'm, well, I was just actually thinking about the way you were talking about collections and, uh, masculinity and, and, uh, and networks because this project that I'm doing, which is really looking at, uh, this phenomenon that was very important in Chinese society for many centuries of men patronizing other men, men living in the houses of other men as their retainers. I've, and we know this exists with, it's not new. I mean, the finding out that this, this happened is not new, but really thinking about how this shaped 
ideas about gender, of ideas about family. Um, that's what I'm kind of excited to work on. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of that work um, to talk about this work. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on really an amazing volume. And thanks very, very much for talking about it today. Well, thanks to you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.